You are listening to the PhD Pod, the podcast from UCAPS, the PhD Association of the University of Copenhagen. We bring the people behind the science to the foreground. Hello and welcome everybody to this week's PhD Pod episode. My name is Sebastian and with me in the studio today is Johanna. Hello. And our guest for today is Sam. Hi. To get us started, Sam, in one minute, what will you talk about today? So today I will talk about uh, my PhD I defended in 2018 and about my uh, project since I finished my PhD, about um, all the sailing ship. So there we already hear there is some interesting stuff coming later on with like buying a ship, not a normal thing to do. But uh, I think we should start a little bit about your old PhD topic. Um, Sam, you and I, we are not strangers, like we worked at the same department, or I think actually we just missed each other. So I just started my PhD when you were just about to finish your PhD. So I have some insights into what you're working with. But luckily we have Johanna here today and she will make sure that we don't run into some experts discussions. And also you're already three years out of working with this topic. So I think we should make sure that all our listeners are in on what we're talking about. The topic of your paper which you just stole from me, is <laughs> short and long-term controls on active layer and permafrost carbon turnover across the Arctic. Many words that I think most of our listeners never heard about. Can you talk us through what is the active layer and permafrost? Okay, um, so permafrost is basically, um, it's soil that remains frozen, I mean, below zero degree all year around. So in uh, temperate climates, you have, I mean, uh, in the summer, the soil comes uh, above zero degree. So it's thawing. And in the winter, the temperature, atmospheric temperature are below zero. And the soil is basically uh, freezing. But in the Arctic area or high altitude area, uh, the soil remains frozen. And only the upper part of the soil is thawing in the summer. And that's the active layer. And what's underneath the active layer, it rem remains frozen, that's the permafrost. And so where is the carbon and moreover the carbon turnover coming in? The carbon is basically, it's all the organic matter that's in the soil. So the, um, yeah, basically plants, they are uh, um, magnificent factories, they capture the carbon from the atmosphere, they create their carbon chain, they live for a while, then they die, and then new plants come and live on it. And everything is mixed up, and all this old carbon, when the plant dies, it's available for decomposition. So then um, uh, there is a lot of microbes, a lot of bacteria, different species when come and break this carbon chain. And uh, by breaking this carbon chain, they uh, release uh, usually some gas, some CO2 or some methane that comes to the atmosphere. And now you're mentioning CO2 and methane, if I'm correct informed, these are greenhouse gases. Yes. So they make it warmer, right? Yeah, I mean, it's that's, uh, so that's a little bit further. That's when we look at this positive feedback. So uh, this one you need to explain, positive <laughs> feedback. What's <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs> okay, so there's many different layers. But le let's just finish with the, the permafrost. So, um, to, yeah, in temperate climates. Um, temperate is here, Europe, yeah, for here, example. Yeah, Europe, right? Denmark. Mm -hmm. yeah, we're in Denmark and Copenhagen now. Uh, this, basically, since the soil is only frozen part of the year, a bit in the winter, or not even here, actually, all this carbon is always available for decomposition. In Arctic area, the carbon that's uh, 
stuck in permafrost because it, the soil is always growing upward, you know, aggrading. Uh, the carbon that comes in the permafrost because it was not decomposed, it remains uh, frozen. It's not available for decomposition anymore. So it just remains stable. So you store basically large quantity of organic matter in permafrost as the soil uh, grows in uh, Arctic area. And uh, yeah, the issue we have today is that atmospheric temperature are increasing due to uh, global warming, greenhouse gases, human activity. Don't want to go in detail, but uh, and then the thickness of the active layer is increasing. So mm -hmm. because uh, uh, higher uh, uh, atmospheric temperature, so then suddenly we have new carbon that's now available for decomposition. So we increase the size of the carbon pool that's available for microbial. Bial decom decomposition, and this. Uh, what is that exactly? Can you explain the decomposition a little bit more okay. in detail? So, uh, yeah. How so the organic matter. So that's basically carbon. We we say decomposition or mineralization. Mineralization is more like the chemical process, but that the bacteria will take the carbon that's in long carbon chain that's in a stable form, break it, and create CO2 and methane. Basically, the I mean, in other ways, they, they eat the uh, food and they fart and they create <laughs> CO2 and methane. So it'd be a better image. <laughs> and, uh, so it's basically the process by which the carbon gets released from the soil into the yeah. surroundings as well. It's decomposition or uh, carbon mineralization. Uh, and if I understand this right, that's connected to climate change and basic science, right? It's not applied science. Yeah, I mean... So who going to use knowledge that you generated during your PhD? I mean, uh, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is used by, uh, I don't know, uh, governmental organization or IPCC. or I mean, this data comes in a bigger... IPCC, we should quickly explain who or what is the IPCC. Okay, uh, international... Uh, Panel <laughs> for Climate Change. Yes. I, I read <laughs> up on that, yes. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, it's been a while. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, basically this publication, it was part of a European project called Page 21 that financed this research. And so um, hopefully they are interested in what we find. They were uh, interested in, yeah, getting more knowledge about carbon in the Arctic, uh, in permafrost. I mean, it was all around permafrost. Yeah, we work with permafrost. We understood the, the positive feedback permafrost is throwing, so more ca uh, carbon dioxide and methane goes to the atmosphere, more global warming, permafrost is more thawing. It's like the snowball effect, you know, it grows, it grows. Basically, scientists are generally concerned. There is, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's not good what's happening, <laughs> and we don't know to which extent. But um. so let's maybe come back to this yeah. uh, later again, because first I like to ask you a little bit about how you did your work, because you talk yeah. about the Arctic, and I think most people know the Arctic is like in the north of our planet, but I think the very few people have actually visited there, and you've been in various parts. So you've been to northern Russia. Yeah. Or just got samples from there. You've been uh, to Svalbard. These are some islands off the Norwegian coast. And you've been working in North Sweden. How is it to be in the Arctic? And how is it to work in the Arctic? Uh, being in the Arctic, um, yeah, for me, it's an amazing experience. It's, um, I think it's like the last, I mean, this is the wildest place I've seen uh, by far. What uh, means wild? 
while that means uh, no signs of any humans and no sign of any uh, previous humans that may have been there and and uh, hostile nature and do you find this comforting or are you worried when you're in such a remote place i find this comforting and uh, i like to be away from humans sometimes <laughs> and uh, what you do there is basically just taking samples from the soil or yeah. how can one imagine so like I've your daily work on such a field trip I, uh, yeah, so for uh, my PhD, I was basically collecting samples. Well, in the paper, we talk about 241 samples. We collected over, it's a lot. It takes a, uh, an hour or more to collect each sample. And What is a sample? A sample, it's a, a piece of soil. Basically, so is there a little bit of dirt? Yeah, some dirt <laughs> oh, you should never soil. call it dirt. <laughs> oh, what <laughs> a mistake! <laughs> Permafrost, uh, dirt. <laughs> um, so we, yeah, so it was like we had a systematic method. We will collect sample in the same way, sometime on some transect as equal distance, randomly choosing. I mean, we had a we had a system, and we try to maximize the amount of sample we could get in one day. It takes a, it takes a lot of time, so um, yeah, uh, we went to some very very remote area in some uh, tundra in some uh, some valley bottom, a lot of different uh, 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 geomorphological environment and collected samples. So you already said that it is quite remote there. Um, what are the challenges and problems to work in such an extreme environment? Uh, logistic. I mean you. Yeah, I mean, logistically, it's uh, difficult. I mean, uh, to go to taxi. I mean, for example, you take so many planes, track boats. Uh, it's it takes you days and days to to reach there, and then uh, yeah, you once you reach there, you want to be there for a while. You know, you cannot just be there two days. And how long uh, was your field season normally? Uh, in uh, Siberia, it was a month or two. One and I don't remember one or two months. Usually, we go for a month at least. And uh, yeah, and then you need infrastructure like. Uh, um, and if you collect sample in the summer, for example, and you collect permafrost sample, you want to keep your samples frozen, so you need to uh, energy to uh, keep them below zero degree. There is logistically it's hell, and uh, that's a little bit of so controversial because we work on, uh, I mean, on permafrost carbon, of course, linked to uh, climate change. And in order to do this work, we uh, take a lot of planes, sometimes helicopters, sometimes. Uh, we use drilling equipment, and and uh, it's a uh, yeah, and then we we're living in some uh, uh, base station, all run on fossil fuel with diesel generators. And <laughs> what is it that uh, comes next to next? So you collect all of these samples, and what's the next step? Uh, then we uh, you need to find a way to send them back. So. Uh, so you're not taking them home with you? No, you don't uh, bring them in the plane. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, actually. No you, hand luggage for... Uh, I once brought my samples from a field site with me with some meat that I kept frozen from the area. Okay. My normal hand luggage, and that was possible. I think it's possible, but uh, for uh, us, I mean, the volume of sample was just too big. Um, in Svalbard, it was no problem. There is a lot of infrastructure, big airport. You can, I mean, keep them frozen in a um, that you, uh, container you put in the plane. In Siberia, it was more challenging 
Can you explain to somebody who never worked with any of these kind of samples, which sizes or weights are we talking about? Are we talking about a couple of hundred grams, kilograms, tons? How much samples did you take with you from Siberia? Uh, I think Siberia, maybe, I would say we had 200 samples at least. Each sample is roughly, I would say, 500 gram, roughly. So 100 kilo of material yeah, that you need perhaps, to move. Yeah. Yeah, that's not your normal average bag. No, yeah, no. No, we had uh, one big uh, freezing box, I remember, and actually maybe two we had. Yeah. So now you went through all this trouble of collecting samples, analyzing samples, moving samples. What is your outcome of this one? What could you read from these samples that you analyzed? So uh, my specific subject, I was trying to find um, potential parameters that will control the rate of decay of this organic matter. Because uh, you can take a sample from Siberia, a sample from North Sweden, Svalbard, Greenland, maybe they have the same amount of carbon, but they will decay, this carbon will uh, get released in at very different rates. And um, yeah, I was trying to explain what what is it in uh, my hypothesis is that it was not linked to uh, microbial population. It was rather linked to uh, soil parameters. So, um, What are soil parameters? A chemistry uh, or physical parameter, maybe a density, amount of uh, um, uh, minerals. I mean, so I, I studied different, uh, different soil parameters, also the carbon to ni nitrogen ratio and... Uh, to try to understand, is there some driving parameters for this rate of decay? So uh, did you find any? Not really. <laughs> I found some some kind of correlation, but nothing was really strong. It's, uh, it's more, of course, it's more complicated. But one parameter I found that um, kind of works it's um, uh, dry build density, so basically the density of the soil. Mm -hmm. It gives a good estimate of the rate of uh, decay, I mean, how fast the carbon uh, will get released to the atmosphere. But it kind of makes sense because the density also represents how much carbon, uh, organic matter there is in the soil because the density of organic matter is about 0 0.9. The density of uh, mineral particle like sand is more like 2.6. And this kind of ratio gives uh, an idea. But, um, so this kind of information can then be used to inform forecasts, for example, of uh, CO2 emissions and yeah. climate uh, change forecasting in a way. Yeah, but okay, I don't want to, I'm a bit outdated now, but in 2018, I know that uh, in uh, climate models, uh, most of the climate models, they were uh, discussed politically. They didn't include permafrost because of lack of data. It mm -hmm. was too, and it's a big, um, how do you say, bomb, basically. <laughs> a tick, tick. Uh, but hopefully maybe uh, today I need to check if uh, permafrost is included in the models because it's a big, big uh, parameters. So you just dropped the word bomb here. Should we be worried <laughs> about what's happening in the Arctic? Uh, I mean, I think we should just... Uh, okay, my, I'm a bit more radical, but I think we should just be worried about uh, what's happening with the climate generally in the Arctic or elsewhere. It's uh, there's some. I mean, I'm more. You asked me question about permafrost. That's my <laughs> subject, but I'm sure someone working on the ocean acidification or 
or uh, deforestation, or we'll say it's also a bomb. There is bombs everywhere. So what if some of our listeners are interested in doing something similar, like they also are worried about this bomb uh, exploding soon and they think permafrost is a, an interesting topic. What, what should they do? What kind of requirements are there to work in your field? So basically I was studying past glaciation, then I studied gla glacier, so I came back. And now I st after that I studied permafrost, so I went more and more recent in time. <laughs> so, um, but you, there, I mean, there is many ways uh, to study permafrost. and um, and, uh, and But you I need some kind of like geoscience background. That's kind of the standard way how to yeah. get into the field, right? So either ge physical geography or uh, soil chemistry, you can go with geology. There's many uh, geomorphology. I, I was working with soil chemistry, but there's so many ways to look at permafrost. Good. So um, a relevant topic uh, with fantastic field work in remote mm -hmm. places, mm -hmm. um, which has a future, I think. I think this topic is not completely discussed to a finished state, um, or? Uh, yeah, no, 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 but uh, I'm, I'm wondering if in the podcast I can uh, be a little bit more uh, engaged, perhaps. <laughs> 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 yes. No, because I, I just want to say also one uh, one of the reasons I decided to step out from science, because now we are, you're asking me if I w what I would recommend to someone, is maybe also I stepped in science because I was a bit uh, naive. I thought um, I would uh, witness some uh, uh, radical changes in um, uh, yeah in the way we live today because of this climate crisis. And uh, where I was really disappointed is to find out that uh, yeah you were I worked with amazing scientists and really amazing people that have very deep and strong knowledge of how complicated and how big the problem is. And uh, yeah, and I have the feeling that uh, still nothing is done in society, and we're just going towards um, towards the wall. And that's why somehow I stepped out because I felt like we publish articles, we do things, and and then politicians say, yeah, by 2040 or 50, there will be no more single-use plastic, or <laughs> and it just feels like. Uh, <laughs> The prob I have the feeling the problem is bigger and mm. is more urgent. So that's why I, I started something else. And, uh, and what you started, we're going to talk in our next segment yeah. after this small break. Okay, uh, so during uh, your PhD, you decided to buy an old cargo ship from uh, 1932, the Havila. And uh, I read up a little bit on, on the ship and on your homepage, it says that after sailing on board uh, the, how do you actually pronounce it? Havila. Havila. Okay. Yeah. In the Baltic in 2013, he fell in love and saved the abandoned ship from the breakers in 2014 by founding the nonprofit association Havila Project. So... How, how did you come up with this idea? <laughs> okay, um, so it, it's a mix. It came to me and I also came up with the idea somehow. But uh, yeah, I've been sailing all my life. I grew up uh, west coast of France. And uh, when I, I heard about this ship, Havila, in 2012, I was in Norway. 
And I knew it was around Copenhagen. And 2013, I got uh, the PhD in Copenhagen. So I moved from Norway to Copenhagen. And I right away called the, the captain because I was very curious. And, um, <laughs> and then we sailed together in the Baltic, and brought the ship uh, to Copenhagen. And then the, I literally, it's probably May, and I started my PhD in April. So I literally just arrived. And in June or July, the former captain left the ship in Copenhagen and I started taking care of her. Um, so, um, yeah, it's an old uh, two-masted sailing ship, all uh, built uh, in wood um, in Norway. So it's only in Oak. It's a beautiful, a very beautiful ship that's used to transport more than 100 tons of cargo of ice. So before uh, we invented uh, freezers, fishermen, it's mostly fishermen, but also other business. And you did ice to preserve their, their products. And so you had ships that were uh, sailing to Norway. Uh, taking some ice and delivering the ice on the coast for the fishermen. And Havila was one of these ships. There were many, many of them. And in the summer, they could store the ice. So I also like this image. of. <laughs> and then um, after that, she became a general cargo ship, a fishing vessel, then a training ship. Long, long story. But yeah, just to answer uh, the question, it's <laughs> it came to me because the owner left. And um, so in 2013, uh, as I mentioned, and 2014, he came back and wanted to scrape her down because he, it was like a big, uh, heavy ball on his feet. Um, and I created, uh, well, it's written I, but yeah, it's me and uh, a lot of friends. We created this association, Havila Project, and we bought the ship and we saved her from the destruction. And then we did uh, some refits. And then in 2016, uh, we started sailing uh, but again. like how did you come to this decision i mean it's this uh, boat is like 35 meters long so that's not your average small boat that you have in your <laughs> kind of backyard <laughs> or anything and that's like a huge project that you've taken on so mm -hmm. so how was your decision process in deciding okay i have to save this this boat and do whatever it takes to keep it alive um, I think it, um, there was a bit of craziness involved in the decision process. Uh, <laughs> if you're saying just a bit of craziness, I yeah. think <laughs> other people would say like a huge bucket load of it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, it's... Yeah, I mean, the decision... Pro it's a lot of sleepless, uh, sleepless night, I must admit. Because the thing is, I realized at some point that if I, I don't take this risk, this the ship is going to be cut off. And this ship has such a long history. And what really touched me is um, because I try to um, inform people that the ship will be scraped down and the uh, families that own the ship for, for 65, 70 years in Sweden, it's a Swedish family, uh, they came to see the ship because they had sold it in 2009. So it was... Um, and uh, because they heard that it will, will be scraped down and they visited and... The, and they were crying and they, because they didn't have the resource to, to take her, you know. And this really also touched me. And I, I also had sailed with her and uh, I got so strong feelings while sailing. And I think this was, was driving me. But I, I, the thing, yeah, and I grew up with ships. So I know, uh, I always heard, never get a wooden ship, never get a old ship, never get a big ship. So I know it was all wrong. <laughs> It was the wrong decision. It was, but I, I never regretted it. So. You know the old joke, right? Yeah. What are the best days of like a ship owner? Yeah. 
the buy the day he buys it and the day yeah. he sells it yes <laughs> exactly and uh and it's, well, funny uh, story uh, our neighbor in the harbor were super old fishermen like yeah very old and they were going fishing every day with their a little also wooden ship but smaller than Havila and and um yeah we were going to their cabin and sometimes we we're smoking joint with the captain <laughs> i mean it was and uh, i told them yeah oh, i'm so happy finally we signed the paper i bought havila and and then uh, the the mate he like oh lo, 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 what did you do oh man ah oh, i know i know it very well there is three things gonna happen to you to you three things first you're gonna lose your money second you're gonna lose your wife third you're gonna lose your ship <laughs> <laughs> I can read it. <laughs> and uh, did you also lose your PhD for that? <laughs> no, <laughs> <Or> <laughs> <laughs> nearly. <laughs> How did you like manage to do? So I lost my money. I time. lost many wives, and uh, but I didn't lose a PhD. So I, I had a very congrats uh, <laughs> on that already. <laughs> I um, yeah, 2018 I defended. So after uh, five years, so it took me a bit longer because I had to manage the ship. We were sailing every summer. Um, This ship is a long story. We started uh, doing cultural, educational activity in the summer. So we sailed with school, with a private group, but also uh, uh, also with uh, cultural projects. So we made an art project with some circus, some choreographer, and we were touring in the Baltic. So that was a big drive, the summer drive. And then in the winter, I was a, a rat lab, uh, analyzing all my PhD samples, basically. Uh, so maybe let's a little bit move over to the present. So where is your ship now and in what state is it? So uh, that's uh, the story of today. So we sail until 2020. Uh, we also sailed during the COVID period, which was uh, very interesting. And uh, we had planned since 2018, 2019, a big refit because our, we were able to put her in, back into shape, but like for a temporary Uh, she needed a big work. And so we saved up money uh, along this year during the summer. Uh, I say we, it's uh, me and uh, the group of friends. And uh, we started, uh, we planned to start this big work. It was supposed to last one year where we will do intense work on the ship with um, a bunch of money that we had saved up. And uh, we found a shipyard in Holbeck. So we sailed to uh, Holbeck uh, September 2020. We were supposed to sail maybe in summer 2022, uh, uh, 2020, yeah, 2022 or winter 2021 perhaps. And, uh, but yeah, now we are uh, two and a half year in the process and we have actually changed 90% of the wood. So we're rebuilding a new ship basically. So that's uh, something that was not planned and we're not ready before two or three years. And we need way more money than we had actually saved. <laughs> so all the things that people want you about are coming slowly through? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, but uh, uh, I'm not going to lose the ship. <laughs> so maybe you also want to say something about the wood that you're using for that ship and the ideas that you have with this whole project. So the whole project, it also came, it's very much in line also with the PhD, Uh, in the sense that I wanted to do something more uh, concrete, you know, like uh, try different. Oh, it's like an experiment. I mean, that's how I see it. It's, it's like trying, uh, taking the, yeah, the first hypothesis is the world in which we live, the system 
do not uh, work. I mean, it's not sustainable. It's not going to work on the long term, this old system we live in. So we need to find other system. Um, I, I'm not uh, smarter than others, but I like to do experiment. And it's nice to look at how we... I like to take the past as an example, because, uh, for example, we sailed uh, using the, the wind for ships. Uh, so ships were propelled by wind for like 5,000 years or even more. It's always been there. And we built ships out of wood for 5,000 years. And uh, over this uh, period of time, uh, no drastic change in the environment occurred. And so what we have now as ships, it's 5,000 years of technology. Very slow technology, but the ships, the, the, just the ships like Havila that are just 100 years old, it's the top of the technology after 5,000 years. And I think it's quite interesting to come back to this. This is the last thing that kind of work that had and why did it work you know what what made made it that we could do this for 5000 years without fucking up the environment you know and i like to i think it makes a lot of sense to redo this today uh, in today's uh, uh, climate crisis context uh, let's uh, put it like this and so yeah havila was transporting cargo and was propelled by uh, by wind can does it make sense to do this today again what does it cost how much energy do we have enough tree do we and we could do it in theory all on paper but we know it's we all know it's going to be wrong you need to actually do the things to understand how it works can can it be a solution not or not a solution maybe an alternative way of doing things and so we're trying to now we are rebuilding havila as a sailing cargo ship, we would like to uh, sail with Havila uh, without using any fossil fuel. So sail between 60 and 80 tons of cargo across the Atlantic without fossil fuel emission. And um, then you ask me more specifically about uh, forest. So all the wood we uh, get for Havila, uh, it's oak from Danish uh, forests that were planted 200 years ago. They are uh, all, I mean, those trees, they are, um, they are cut by selection picking. So they are uh, selected by foresters. So they can, uh, they, they fell the tree and then it gives more light for another tree. And, um, and uh, the, the forest continues to grow. Uh, and then it's interesting to see this. Can Havila in this context be considered as a carbon storage? So, and how much carbon can st be stored uh, in a stable form as tree in in the hull of uh, Havila? Because uh, oak uh, forests, you probably know, uh, are matured. They are planted in 1810 after the Battle of Copenhagen. Um, so, all these oaks are mature. So, when a forest is mature, I'm not a forester expert, but I'm <laughs> but basically all the canopy is occupied. Uh, and then uh, the, the tree, the forest grows very slowly. What it means that it grows slowly, it means that it captures less carbon from the atmosphere to create carbon chain because all the canopy is occupied, so it will only uh, grow in two dimensions, like vertically, not in three dimensions. So what you do also there uh, to, to stimulate the forest to capture more carbon, for example, you will fell some trees to give light to some new trees, and then suddenly tree can grow again 3D and uh, uh, stimulate their, their growth. And, but if you use this wood and you put it in a stable form in a ship, then you can actually consider the ship as a carbon 
store, a store for eight years, we will store this amount of carbon in a ship. And this ship will be transporting goods by uh, wind without fossil fuel um, and uh, will be maintained also using wood from this forest. So you're planning to turn Havila actually into a sustainable carbon ship that's actively transporting things like I could, uh, for example, if I'm a company and I want to ship something, then I could ship it with you, ideally. Yeah, so that, that's we want to provide a service. And of course, it's a small-scale service. And we see it also somehow as an experiment because transport today, um, it's a missing link in the, uh, the sustainable chain of product. You know, We know, for example, if you want coffee, We know very well how to plant coffee, grow it in a fair way, in a sustainable way. Here is biodynamic coffee where people are uh, well pay, um, paid uh, uh, reasonably. And, uh, but, and we have conscious consumer in, uh, in Europe. The problem is how do you transport this? I mean, you can go with a system. It's container. There is no alternative. Container or planes. So cargo planes, con coffee, you will transport it, uh, uh, green beans in containers. And so you go through a big harbor, it's loaded, it goes through the gl global market. What if we will provide also for this type of products that are already, um, uh, yeah, that are already respecting every uh, person in the supply chain, if this product could also be transported in a sustainable way, in a carbon-free way, and for, with respect for the environment, respect for the humans. And so that's also how, yeah, this idea, what will be the final price of this product? Is it totally crazy or is it still mm. reasonable? Or is it, is it something we can afford? You know, I can I buy this coffee? Or <laughs> and, uh, and, I, well, for now we didn't start, but uh, we have there's two other ships that sail uh, coffee, and the overprice is so uh, uh, marginal that uh, it's about five percent between five and ten percent. So instead of drinking uh, 10 cup of coffee, you will drink nine. So that will be for the consumers uh, overprice. And uh, on this size ship, you know, 60 ton, it's nothing compared to the huge Merck's. Uh. So I like to to question this and, and try different approach. And by doing it, we can also uh, influence people, make them think. We can bring a bit of uh, romanticism also in something that is so sterile, this cargo shipping, you know. Here it will be transported with sail ship. And then on board, you could have, for example, school kids that will go on an Atlantic trip and load some cargo and uh, see the sea, see, discover the nature and see where we plant the coffee, who is drinking the coffee. And so with all these plants you're having, What do you mm. think, when will it happen and where do you want to sail with it? Uh, so when? Uh, the thing, <laughs> this question is a bit tricky because <laughs> in 2020, I was like, yeah, next year uh, it's going to happen. Then 2021, it was still next year. I so let say, me guess, it's next year? No, now I kind of accepted that. The problem with wooden ship is everything is like a sandwich in layer and... It's so hard to access some of the parts of the ship that once you have accessed them, you want to do everything. And we have amazing boat builders. So in the group now, we have uh, shipwrights and boat builders that are uh, super, super skilled. And they want to do amazing work. We have amazing wood. And so, of course, it's super hard to leave some rotten wood in some places because it's too hard to access. So s we started small. And then we decided to make... 
a big move at the bow and then we decided to extend this big move midship well now it's a totally new ship i mean we could have actually literally built a new ship from scratch but here the way we do it is that we ensure exactly the same shape for the hull you know it's a, it is the same ship um, but i mean it's the same ship i don't know it's a philosophical question uh, it's going to be only the keel and a few frame left but um yeah. the spirit the spirit remain. <laughs> so maybe to circle back to more or less what we started with did you ever regret buying this ship no no because uh it's it's a um, for it's a beautiful adventure it's like um especially a human adventure i see i mean all the people uh I met through this project all the things, all this, I mean, so much life was created somehow in this process and all the people that met each other, all the, and it's hard, it's hard. I mean, uh, yeah, um, yeah, we are all volunteer, we work for free, we all, I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult uh, life, but we work with an ideal and a vision and uh, And so I, there are days where I'm like, oh, fucking hell, I wish I had continued my well-paid job in Copenhagen and uh, when I, I have a lot of bills piling up and I need to do a shitty job to, to pay them. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's, yeah, the vision and it really fits me. Um, and I, so I'd, I don't regret, even though sometimes I'm a bit grumpy. But um, if I'm now as fascinated as you by this whole project uh how could i support you or where can people find out more about this uh so they can go we have website havila.org so it's h-a-w-i-l-a dot org uh so there is different we have uh, the non-profit and we now created a company that owns the ship so a lot of people are supporting the project they buy shares or uh, people become member of the association um, uh, make donations there is right now the limiting factor is the money because we're amazing strong uh, group of friend people we have all i think all the skills within the group um, but uh, yeah today uh, economical um, scene is a bit uh, difficult so uh, we are raising less money for the project which is and our ambition are growing so, <laughs> so it's bar a bit more difficult but um yeah for yeah so you can help us with uh, or you can money or you can also come and volunteer with us have, um, and maybe say this again where can people visit you can you at the moment see the ship the sh yeah you can come to holbeck harbor the ship is in holbeck harbor now actually i don't know when this will be published but hopefully in april may we're going to take out the ship from the water We got a piece of land from the, the, the Comuna and the harbor authorities in the harbor where we're going to put the ship because now we are finished with all the inside. So we finish all the framing, the shelves, the deck beams. We want to do the planking on the outside and under water line. So we, the next step, we need to crane the ship out. So you're very welcome to come. And uh, yeah, you can come. Uh, I'm volunteer. definitely going to come. <laughs> Is that a deal, Sebastian? <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, like I was one of the lucky people that actually sailed on the Havila and also already visited in Holbeck. At the moment, it's a bit heartbreaking to see it because it's really broken down but it's a beautiful piece of wood that you have there yeah and uh, yeah that's what is <laughs> right now is a bit difficult that we have remade entirely the inside i mean uh, the inside structure so there is nothing else 
if you're a boat builder, if you know ships, you enter there, it's like a cathedral and you see the amount of work. But the outside remains um, the old outside and we made a lot of holes to fit the inside. So from the outside, it looks absolutely terrible. So I can't <laughs> wait to have her on land, change the planking and then she will be shiny. <laughs> okay, um, well, I'm definitely going to come by and I'm very much looking forward to that. Thanks a lot for also telling uh, or sharing your story yeah. with us. Uh, it's very impressive what you've built there so far. And um, I'm very curious now about uh, the lightning round and uh, looking forward to ask you some tricky questions in the end now. Something everybody should know about your topic. Uh, permafrost and carbon. What advice do you give yourself at the beginning of your PhD? Uh, oh la la. Um, it's going to be long and hard. <laughs> What do you do to be productive? Uh, I, I get at it. Once I start, I'm productive, but it's really hard to start. Sometimes. On the day I defended my PhD, I did? Uh, actually, I realized I was a typo on the cover of my PhD that just came out from the print. Worst job you ever had? Uh, probably logging sediment core in Svalbard. Yeah. What is your dream job? Ah, sailing and uh, yeah, sailing and being paid. <laughs> What is your exit plan if your current uh, career doesn't work out? Uh, I don't know, some kind of office uh, job. <laughs> well paid. <laughs> no, I'm uh, no, I don't know. Exit plan. Yeah, I didn't really think about it. You're no already plan. on the exit plan. Yeah, probably. <laughs> One thing you are proud of. Um, yeah, Havila, rebuilding this ship, this project, I'm proud of. One thing that went catastrophically wrong? Hmm, I, um, um, I don't have, uh, maybe my, some of my past relationship, <laughs> because of the ship. <laughs> Then let's move on, a book you recommend everybody to read? Um, on the Road, Jack Kerouac. Okay, great. So uh, thanks a lot for your time. It was uh, really interesting to talk to you today. It's been a pleasure learning about permafrost and uh, boats. So if our listeners have any further questions, where can they find you? Um, internet, so havila.org, H-A-W-I-L-A. And then yeah, we have Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, we have a newsletter, we have a YouTube channel. You can find us everywhere. Yes, um, so what was it that we learned today, Sebastian? So I got out of the last part that having an old wooden ship is definitely a challenging task and can lead to nightmares sometimes, but it's also a dream come true. Yeah, it's dream and nightmare at the same time. But uh, yeah, I, I hope it's mostly dreams. And could <laughs> Sam teach you something about the Arctic and permafrost? Well, definitely you could teach uh, something to me. So I learned that uh, it's not just the dirt that you're collecting in the Arctic, <laughs> but uh, okay. it's uh, very valuable samples that they're super heavy and that you can learn a lot from them about how uh, CO2 affects our climate. So I definitely got something out of that as well here. Um, would you agree to that conclusion or anything to add? I think it's perfect. Yeah, I'm uh, very happy I, uh, I uh, t uh, taught you something. <laughs> and we are nice. very happy that you took the time to come out here in our small studio and talk to us.
Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you for listening. Bye bye. 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 This was PhD Pod, the UCAPS podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to be our next guest, write to us on UCAPS at KUDK. And please like, follow, and subscribe to our channels. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The PhD Pod is supported by the University of Copenhagen. Your hosts today were Johanna Einsiedler and Sebastian Sastrushny. Production is by Penelle Jensen and Jennifer Musser. Editing, Simon Owens. <laughs>